Hello everybody, this is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. In this audio, I intend to cover Romans 11, verse 25, all the way to the end of the chapter, verse 36. Our context is this, Paul in chapter 11 talked about in the first section of chapter 11, the remnant of Israel, those individual Jews who believed in Christ, a minority, when compared to the mass of Israel who had rejected Christ. And then after he talks about a remnant being saved, a remnant of Israel being saved, then he talks about the Gentiles being grafted back into the kingdom of God, the cultivated olive tree. And so he talks about Gentiles coming in, and, and the reason that the Gentiles came in is because the Jews rejected Christ, and then that gave the Gentiles an opportunity to come in, and then, of course, their coming in is going to provoke the Jews to jealousy, and they're going to all come in, and we're all going to be grafted into that cultivated olive tree, which is the Israel of God, the church, the people of God. Now, in this last section, Paul is going to return to the idea or the concept of the remnant of Israel getting saved. He's going to talk about the mystery of Israel's salvation and how they are ultimately going to be saved. Now, in this passage, we're going to have some of the most bodaciously difficult theological issues arise. But I'm going to lay out the issues, and I'll report them. You decide them. We start in verse 25. Paul continues, so that you will not be conceited, brothers. I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery. A partial hardening has come to Israel until the full number of the Gentiles has come in. Now, why does Paul not want them to be conceited? It's because, as I've said, as Paul has said in these previous chapters, hey, Gentiles, you have got nothing to brag about. You came in not based on works, but on faith, and the Jews were they had the root of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the patriarchs. They had the oracles of God. They had the law of God. They had the temple. God loved them, and he chose them. So you've got no reason to be conceited because you're saved now and they're not. And I suspect there was a tendency amongst the Gentile Christians at Rome and as, and as elsewhere to think, well, you know, the Jews are persecuting us. They're turning us over to the magistrates. They're slandering us, slandering us, saying all kinds of horrible things about our Lord. You know, to heck with them. And Paul wants to not let them get into that attitude, so he doesn't want them to be conceited. So now Paul tells the Gentiles at Rome, this is how I'm going to keep you from getting conceited. I'm going to make you aware of a certain mystery. Now, what is this mystery that Paul's talking about? Now, in Paul's day, mystery religions used that word in a specialized sense. It was something that was only known to the initiated, and you had to go through all kinds of special rites and rituals in order to know the mystery. But Paul changed the meaning to something which was formerly hidden, but is now revealed. He used that word a lot in the New Testament. This is non-controversial. Everybody knows that Paul used the word that way. Now, what mystery was he talking about? Well, the prophets actually had predicted the incorporation of Gentiles into the Lord's people. So that was not a mystery that Gentiles were going to be coming in. But what was a mystery and that had not been predicted by the prophets was the accomplishment of bringing the Gentiles in through the hardening of the Jews. Remember, Paul would go to the synagogues, the Jews would get angry and throw him out, and so he says, okay, I'm going to the Gentiles. How about when the Jews kicked all the Jewish believers out of Jerusalem, and they went to the Gentiles, to the Samaritans first, and then to the other Gentiles? So that was the mystery. That was part of the mystery, is how, well, it was the mystery, is how the hardening of the Jews eventuated in the conversion of the full number of the Gentiles. So Paul says this, a partial hardening has come to Israel until the full number of the Gentiles has come in. Now let's take full number of the Gentiles first. I think that that is not too difficult. It means the full number of elect Gentiles, as the NIV Study Bible and Steve Ackerson say. That would match Paul's usage in Romans 11:12 when he says this, now, if there, the Jews, stumblings brings riches for the world, and their failure riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full number bring? And that's referring to the full number of the Jews. Same word there, full number of the Jews. And so when Paul uses it of the Gentiles, it's the same idea. It's when the elect has been accomplished. The salvation of the elect has been accomplished. Now, this mystery that Paul is talking about, a partial hardening, of the Jews until the Gentiles come in. The mystery is that the Jews have only been partially rejected by God. And so the emphasis there is, hey, the Jews have not been totally hardened, even though it looks like it, the way they've been treating you Gentile Christians. But no, they've only been partially hardened. 
there's still going to be Jews coming into the kingdom. So let's hold out hope for the Jews, and let's not be arrogant and think that the salvation is only for the Gentiles. After all, how many Jews for so long said that salvation was only of the Jews? Well, let's don't create the equal and opposite error of saying that salvation is only for the Gentiles, because it's only a partial hardening that's come to Israel. And Israel will be partially hardened until the full number of the Gentiles comes in. Now, let's get to the difficult part here. What does the word until mean? The hardening of the Jews of Israel will happen until the full number of the Gentiles comes in. Now, most of the time we don't think about it, but that word until, even in English, is ambiguous. Let me give you an example. Let's say I will hold my umbrella up until it stops raining. Okay, well, you might think, well, that just means when it starts stops raining, I'll put my umbrella away. Well, it could mean that, but hey, it could mean you'll keep your umbrella up until it stops raining, and then when it stops raining and the sun comes out, you'll keep the umbrella up to keep the sun off. That doesn't contradict the sentence. I will keep my umbrella up until it stops raining, and the implied rest of the sentence is, and I'll keep it up even after it stops raining. So, until is ambiguous. We have another problem. The phrase partially hardened is ambiguous. At some point, the partial hardening is going to stop. And the question is, is what happens when it stops? Is there now going to be a complete 100% hardening? Or is there going to be a complete 100% loosening? All right, well, given those ambiguities, let's look at what our options are as to how we interpret until. First of all, can it be 100% hardening? In other words, an the Jews will be partially hardened until the fullness of the Gentiles come in, and when all the elect of the Gentiles in, bam, then 100% of the Jews are going to be hardened, and that's going to be it for them, no more salvation. Well, that can't be the correct option. Romans 11:12 says this, Now if there, the Jews, trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? Full inclusion. That doesn't sound like they're going to be hardened completely so that no more is going to come in, all right? Well, here's another option. It could be a partial, the partial hardening will continue after the time when the Gentiles, the fullness of the Gentiles is reached. And that's, again, the analogy is I'll hold my umbrella up until it stops raining, but then I'll just keep on holding it up after it stops raining and the sun comes out. It could mean that. Israel will be partially hardened all the way to the Gentiles come in, and then they will be partially hardened even after the electors come in. But the problem with that is that would mean that all the Gentiles are in, and meanwhile, Jews are still trickling into the kingdom, partially hardened after the Gentiles are fully converted. And that doesn't make any sense, does it? While Gentile conversions would stop while Jewish conversions are going on. So it's not that, not a, not a continual 50% hardening at that time of the conversion of the fullness of the Gentiles. How about this? And this is the most logical meaning of this. There will be a zero hardening. All the, it, the partial hardening will go from partial, say 50% to zero, they'll be totally unloosed, unhardened when the fullness of the Gentiles reached. And when the fullness of the elect Gentiles comes in, at that time the Jews will not be hardened at all, and then they'll start coming in. And that seems to be the majority opinion that for, for logical reasons. This is what most people believe, most commentators believe, at least the ones I've looked at believe that. Now, there's some problems with this view. It makes the unhardening of the Jews be postponed to the far future. Because the fullness of the Gentiles, that's obviously a long time in the future. There's a lot more Gentiles that are got to come in. That means the Jews are going to be partially hardened all the way through. Ooh, that's not good. And there's another problem. There's a period that is created when only Jews are converted. For example, until the fullness of the Gentiles comes in, that means 100% of the Gentiles elect are converted, and then the Jews are unhardened. And then they are evangelized, so that would make a period of time after the Jew Gentiles are converted, and it'll make a period of time when only Jews are converted and no Gentiles. Now that is a problem, but let me give you an, a solution to that problem. This is from the Cambridge Bible for Schools and Colleges, which says that the unhardening of the Jews and the fulfilling of the Gentile elect can happen simultaneously at the same time. They're not, and they're not the only ones that say that. I've read other commentators. I think. Barnes says that too, if I remember correctly. Let me give you the quote from the Cambridge Bible for Schools and Colleges. Quote, The incoming of the nations to the Church of Christ shall have largely, but not perfectly, taken place when Israel is restored to grace. In other words, the elect are not quite filled up yet. The full number of the Gentile elect is not quite there yet. 
and so that, and continuing with the quote, so that the closing stages of the incoming may be directly connected with the promised revival of Israel. So in other words, it's, it's not exactly the, the Gentiles are completely converted and then the Jews are unhardened. It's that at the end, as the Gentile elect is being wrapped up, as God is converting the last portion of the Gentiles, then he's going to let loose a conversion of the Jews and then a whole ton of them are going to come in. So... Let me read the quote again, so that the closing stages of the incoming may be directly connected with the promised revival of Israel and may follow it in respect of time. In other words, the closing stages of the Gentiles coming in may follow the unhardening of the Jews. Well, okay, that would take care of the problem, but it does make it a little bit less clear, I might say. All right, well now, all those options I gave you, the until, it, those options took until as referring all the way up to a point in time. So I'll call those the time options. And if you're going to take the time options, then it, then you're going to have a coming in of Israel at the end of time, because that's when the fullness of the Gentiles is done, which means that evangelism of Jews is going to be very difficult until then, until the very end. But now there's another interpretation where we can interpret until that does not have anything to do with time. We can translate until for the purpose that. Now, you can translate akrehu, the Greek, for the purpose that, when akrehu is used in conjunction with the aorist subjunctive. This is according to Steve Ackerson. And there is an aorist subjunctive here. When the, gen, when the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, that has come in is aorist subjunctive. Now, if we read it that way, this is what the verse says. A partial hardening has come to Israel in order that the full number of the Gentiles might come in. In order that the full number, for the reason that the full number of the Gentiles might come in. And that would go along with Paul's theme, which of course is their stumbling has been for the riches of the Gentiles, all that we talked about in the previous sections here in verse 11. It would also get rid of all the ambiguities about the time. It would leave the time question completely open as when the the Jews are going to get unhardened, and they're going to start coming into the kingdom. We don't know. So Paul is telling us why Israel was hardened, according to this view. He is not telling us when Israel is going to be unhardening. unhardened. We just don't know. Now, here's some examples to back up this interpretation of akrehu plus the heir subjunctive. Akrehu meaning until, meaning for the purpose that. 1 Corinthians 15.25 for he, that's Jesus, must reign until he puts all his enemies under his feet. That could be read as, for he, Jesus, must reign for the purpose that he put all enemies under his feet. Makes perfect sense. Now, you could take that as time. He must reign until he puts all his enemies under his feet. And then you could say, oh, but then he stops reigning when he puts his enemies under his feet. No, that can't be. But remember, until can, you can, the, the time event can be passed by the event that's being marked for he must reign until he puts all his enemies under his feet. He's going to reign during that time. And then he's going to continue reigning after his enemies have been subjugated. So you could you could interpret that with a time meeting. But it's until plus the air subjunctive, which can be translated as purpose, for the purpose of. Let's go to 1 Corinthians 11.26. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Akrehu plus comes in the aorist subjunctive. So we could read it this way. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death for the purpose that he might come. Now that's a little bit a little bit more difficult to see. In, in fact, that interpretation of the verse is used by some, not by many, but by some who say that our, our holding the Lord's Supper actually encourages Jesus to come back. Well, let's look at Luke 21, 24, Akrehu plus the subjunctive. They will fall by the edge of the sword and be led captive into all the nations, and Jerusalem will be trampled by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. So let's read it this way. They will fall by the edge of the sword and be led captive into all the nations, and Jerusalem will be trampled by the Gentiles for the purpose that the times of the Gentiles be fulfilled. It works the time interpretation works too. I don't mean that they're exclusive, but it does work. So you could interpret this verse, our verse in question here, with the that the until means for the purpose of that. 
A partial hardening has come to Israel for the purpose that the full number of the Gentiles has come in. And as I said earlier, that fits perfectly what Paul's been saying over and over again. Their stumbling is for the riches of the Gentiles. It's for the reason that the Gentiles have gotten saved. It's because the Jews stumbled for that reason. All right, having left that difficult verse, let's go to the next even more difficult verse, verse 26 of Romans 11. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. In which way? By the partial hardening being released at the time the Gentiles will be fulfilled, whenever that might be. And in this way, this unloosening, this this unhardening of Israel, all Israel will be saved, as it is written. The liberator will come from Zion. He will turn away godlessness from Jacob. All right, the all Israel will be saved, of course, is one of the most controversial phrases in all of theology. I remember one time a a writer, and I forgot his name, was writing in the Trinity Journal, which is the theological journal of my seminary, Trinity Evangelical Divinity School in Deerfield, Illinois. And he started his article by saying, this is the most difficult thing he'd ever done in his life. I don't know if I can ever come to an answer on this. You know, it is difficult. So I'm just going to give you the options. But before we get into the difficult part, let's look at the easy part. Paul is quoting a place that is written in the Old Testament. The liberator will come from Zion. He will turn away godlessness from Zion. Where is that a quote from? Paul is quoting Isaiah 59, 20. The Redeemer will come to Zion and to those in Jacob who turn from transgression. This is the Lord's declaration. Now, you can interpret that either in a preterist or futurist sense. Preterist meaning that Paul is talking about the first coming of Jesus. The Redeemer will come to Zion and salvation. Of course, there's a lot of futurists out there who will take this verse and say, See there, that's talking about Jesus coming back at the end of time. Well, since I'm a preterist, I think this refers to what Jesus did at the first coming. He's a redeemer. He redeems us from our sins. He turns us from our transgression. He turns those in Jacob, those in Israel. Jacob meaning Israel. He turns those from their transgression. Now, Paul is quoting from the Septuagint here, and so there's some minor differences from the Hebrew text in Isaiah 59, 20. Isaiah says the Redeemer will come to Zion, and Paul says the Redeemer will come from Zion. Big deal. That really doesn't make any difference one way or the other. Now, in quoting this verse, Isaiah says the Redeemer will come to Zion. The Holman Christian Study Bible translation has the Liberator will come from Zion. The NIV has the Deliverer, the deliverer will come from Zion. doesn't matter if we get the idea. Now, who is this liberator when Isaiah prophesies of him, this redeemer? Well, the NIV study Bible says Isaiah's original reference seems to be to God, but maybe so. I don't see why Isaiah could not be prophesying about Jesus in advance and not really referring to God, but referring to the redeemer Jesus. You know, those issues are always difficult, but Paul obviously refers it to Jesus. The Talmud said it referred to the Messiah, so Paul's not the only person who referred that verse to the Messiah. The Talmud, the Old Testament Jewish writings, did, and so did Paul the Apostle. This is from the NIV Study Bible. All right, now that we've taken care of the easy part of the verse, verse 26 of Romans 11, let's go to this phrase. All Israel will be saved in this way. Again, in what way? By the unhardening of the Jews when the fullness of the Gentiles comes in. And at that point, all Israel will be saved. Now, there's three basic ways this phrase has been interpreted. This is according to the NIV Study Bible and also by an article I read by Lee Irons, the theological writer who's well-known. They say three ways, and also Steve Atkinson breaks it out into three ways. So I think this is a pretty good paradigm of how we can examine the problem. Now, I'm, in my humble opinion, all three of these possible solutions are reasonable. And that's why this is such a difficult theological problem, because when you've got three reasonable options, it's hard to, make, it's hard to find something that pushes you toward one as, away from the other. Well, let's go to option number one. Option one says that all Israel is the total number of elect individual Jews of every generation. In other words, the remnant that Paul was talking about in Romans 11, 1 through 10. He says, for example, in Romans 11:5, so too at the present time there is a remnant chosen by grace. So that's obviously talking about not the whole nation of Israel, but a remnant of Israel, which is chosen by grace, which means they're believers. So it's believing Israel, which is a small portion of unbelieving Israel. Now this view, option number one of all Israel, that it refers to the total number of elect individual Jews of every generation, the remnant. Steve Atkinson affirms that. Also the famous commentators Rudabas, O. Palmer Robertson, Anthony Hoekema, and, and Strumple. I don't know Strumple, but he affirms it. And so this has a lot of theological heavyweights on this 
on the side of this option. Let's read some scriptures supporting that, Romans 11:12. Now, if their stumbling brings riches for the world and their fullness and their failure riches for the Gentiles, talking about the Jews stumbling, brings riches for the Gentiles, how much more will there the Jews full number bring? And so there you're talking about a full number, a full number of individual Jews. Because obviously Paul's talking about people that are getting saved there. Well, full number sounds like all Israel, does it not? It's a similar sounding feel. Also, that idea of full number, it's analogous to the full number of Gentiles. So you have sort of a parallel feel here. Romans 11:25, the previous verse we just read, a partial hardening has come to Israel until the full number of the Gentiles has come in. And then you go to verse 26. And in this way, the full number of Israel will be saved if you carry the parallel forward. But he doesn't, Paul doesn't say the full number will be saved in verse 26. He says all Israel will be saved, but it's the same idea, the full number, the full number of elect believing Jews, the full number of the remnant. Now, I think that's a pretty good argument. But now some people will reject that Israel doesn't mean Christian Jews. It means Jews in general. Well, sometimes it does, but sometimes it does not. For example, in Romans 9, 6, But it is not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel are Israel. So ethnic Jews are not always referred to as Israel by Paul. Romans 9, 6, end of story. So that's a pretty good option. I'm leading toward that option. We go to option number two. This is John Calvin. Held this view. John Gill denies it. Steve Ackerson d- denies it. Option number two is that all Israel is the total number of the elect both Jews and Gentiles. In other words, it's not just the elect Jews, it's the elect Jews and Gentiles. So all Israel will be saved means basically all the church is going to be saved. Now that's possible. There's nothing illogical about that. But the problem is, again, the context. Elsewhere in the chapter, Paul is using Israel to refer to Jews, individual Jews, either saved or unsaved. And it seems unlikely he would switch midstream to a view of Israel as the church all of a sudden. I mean, that was what, two chapters earlier he mentioned in Romans 9, 6, that not all who are descended from Israel are Israel, therefore some unbelief, some, so that therefore believing Gentiles can be a part of Israel, and so therefore Israel can refer to the church. That was two chapters earlier. Seems unlikely that he would all of a sudden jump to the church right here. But anyway, John Calvin believes that, and he's a big shot, so we've got to mention option number two. We go to option number three. This is the option that John Gill and Jameson Fawcett and Brown at least mention if they don't prefer it. And that option is that the great majority, that all Israel refers to the great majority of Jews of the final generation. So in other words, we're in the future now. So this is a futurist interpretation. By the way, options number one and number two, the, the, all Israel is the individual remnant of Israel. That occurs all the way through church history for 2,000 years, present, past, and future. And so is the option that it refers to the church. It's all the time. It's all the way through history. But now option number three is talking about at the end of time. And it refers to the great majority of Jews of the final generation. All Israel, all meaning not necessarily all exclusively, without exception, but all in the sense of many. And all can mean that. You look it up at a lexicon, it often means a lot. So basically, he's saying all Israel means a lot of Israel is going to be saved here at the end. Uh, let me give you a, a statement of that position by Lee Irons. Israel is thus Israel as a whole, as a people whose corporate identity and wholeness would not be lost, even if in the event there were some or indeed many individual exceptions. In other words, Israel is going to be there. A lot of them are going to get saved, and therefore those, the people that are saved can stand for Israel as a whole. If you think about it, nations don't get saved, individuals do. That's why I don't like this interpretation. I, I get tired of people saying, you know, such as a Christian nation. Like in America, America's a Christian nation? No. Nations don't get saved. America's never been a Christian nation. Never, America, America has never had a majority of Christians in it, not even during the Great Awakening in 1740, not even during the Cane Ridge Revival. Now, America's been greatly influenced by Christian teachings as well as other Enlightenment ideas, and that we don't deny that, but it's never been a Christian nation. And... I don't think that you can say that Israel is going to be saved just because a a majority of the Jews even, a lot of the Jews in Israel, individual Jews, get saved. Salvation is an individual thing, so I don't like this option. Now, of course, dispensationalists like this option, and I'm not a dispensationalist, but that's not why I don't like it, because there's a lot of other non-dispensationalists that hold to this view. 
Lots of there's post mills, there's ah mills, there's pre mills, there's all kind of people that believe it, as Lee Irons points out. For example, Hodge apparently, uh, Charles Hodge, the great Princeton theologian, he certainly was no pre mill. He believed it. Well, again, this view is perfectly reasonable. I I don't believe it, but I'm not saying it's unreasonable or that you're crazy to believe it. But let's read some quotes about why this view tends to be difficult. This is from Steve Ackerson. Many interpret verses 25 through 27 of Romans 11 to mean that the partial hardening of Israel will be removed toward the end of the church age after the fullness of the Gentiles is accomplished, resulting in a wholesale conversion of Jews due to the events surrounding the second coming. And that's true. That's all I've heard all my life. However, it seems strange that Paul would introduce a major escalation catalogical event with just five words all israel will be saved with no further explanation and without alluding to it elsewhere in any of his other writings so there's a problem with that saying that this is referring to the jews coming in at the end of time here's another quote and i don't know who this quote is from it might be from steve ackerson i didn't write it down in his commentary on romans martin luther expressed the opinion this passage taught the final conversion of all jews now, notice Martin Luther gets bad ink because of all the nasty stuff he said about the Jews. Oh, he's an anti-Semite. He led to the rise of Hitler and all this stuff. But Martin Luther believed that the Jews were going to get converted in some way. But he originally believed the final conversion of all or, or many Jews uh, of the Jewish nation. Option number three, Usually he used to believe that. However, Luther later accepted the opinion of Origen, the Ophelact, Jerome, and others who identified all Israel with the number of elect Jews. That's option number one corresponding to the expression, the fullness of the Gentiles. That is, the elect among the Gentiles are being brought in through the preaching of the gospel before Judgment Day, and so also are the elect from among the Jews. And there you see the preterist type of interpretation that the partial hardening, the bringing in of the Jews who are partially hardened occurs all the way through history until all the Gentiles are brought in. It's not one big deal at the end of time. All right, then, let me summarize this mess of theological pottage with what my view tentatively is we've go to verse 25 a partial hardening has come to israel that happened at the rejection of christ back in paul's time and it was done in order that i'll take until as meaning for the purpose that not a time reference in order that the full number of gentiles would come in so while this hardening of israel is in effect the full number of the gentiles is coming in and then all Israel will be saved when that full number of the Gentiles has come in, and all Israel is the full number of the Jews has come in. The elect Jew is going to come in to match the elect Gentile, and it happens all together all throughout church history. And associated with this view is the idea of partial hardening, meaning that the hardening of the Jews has not been total during that time between Paul's day and our day until the end of the world, until all the Gentiles come in. The Jews have not been totally hardened. They've only been partially hardened, so we can keep evangelizing them at the same time the full number of Gentiles has come in. Now, I'm not going to take a stand on a hill and defend it to the death on that interpretation. The name of these of this series of audios is Pretty Good Bible Studies. It's not perfect Bible studies. I could be wrong, but so could everybody else who's ever written on the subject too. So let's go to verse 27 of Romans 11. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Now, we're not really sure where Paul is quoting from. Remember, he quoted from Isaiah in the previous verse, Isaiah 59:20, when he talked about the liberator come. The liberator will come from Zion. He will turn away godlessness from Jacob. And then Paul, that's verse 26. And then he goes to verse 27. And he says, and this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. He's still quoting from the Old Testament options as to where he's quoting from it's not really clear it could be isaiah 59 21 as for me this is my covenant with them says the lord my spirit who is on you and my words that i've put in your mouth will not depart from your mouth or from the mouth of your children or from the mouth of your children's children from now on and forever sounds like a covenant when i take away their sins he could be referring to isaiah 27 9 therefore jacob's iniquity iniquity will be purged in this way and the result of the removal of his sin will be this when he makes all the altar stones like crushed bits of chalk no asherah poles or incense altars will remain standing so that's a promise for isaiah to purge israel's sin and iniquity remove its sin 
Or it could be he's just not really quoting from any particular place. He's just taking the old whole covenant covenant promises and, and removal of sins, which is not too hard when you read the Old Testament to see where the Old Testament is going. And he said, this will be my covenant with them. Of course, what covenant is Paul referring to? It's the new covenant prophesied by Jeremiah. Jeremiah 31, verses 31 through 34. Look, the days are coming. This is the Lord's declaration. When I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. And of course, that's fulfilled in Hebrews 8 with the church, where the author of the Christian book of Hebrews takes this verse and directly applies it to the church. And that's where we get the term new covenant from. Now, this quoting of the covenant I will be my covenant with them. That sounds like the new covenant. That sounds like first century talk there. It sounds like this partial hardening is happening during the first century. And the partial unhardening is during the first century, not at the end of the world when a whole mass of Jews comes in. We go to verse 28 of Romans 11. Regarding the gospel, they, the Jews, are enemies for your, the Gentiles' advantage. But regarding election, they are loved because of the patriarchs. Again, this is an old theme that Paul's been spending a lot of time in Romans 10 to the previous chapter. Don't get cocky, Gentiles, just because you're saved by faith. You didn't get saved by anything you did. You didn't get saved by works, so your works are, are nothing. You got saved by faith. And you got to remember, you wouldn't have gotten saved by faith if the, the Jewish nation hadn't been there. The patriarchs hadn't been there. and The law had not been there as types. And if the nation had been not had not been there so Jesus could have gotten born into that nation to get you saved. It's an old theme. And Paul does acknowledge they're enemies. Yeah, they're enemies right now. It's only temporary, though. Only temporary, as the NIV Study Bible quite cogently points out. Because one, at some time, the fullness of the Jews are going to come in, or the all Israel will be saved. So their enemies, their status as enemies is not permanent. And remember, you've got an advantage for the for the their opposition to the gospel has redounded to your benefit because people are now preaching to you Gentiles when before nobody in Israel was saying anything about the Gentiles getting saved. They were busy calling you dogs. Here's a view about because, interpretation of because. The Jews are loved because of the patriarchs. Some people have said that merit is passed from the patriarchs to the Jewish people as a whole. The patriarchs have some kind of merit. The NIV Study Bible denies that. Here's what the NIV Study Bible says is the correct interpretation of that because of the patriarchs, because God irrevocably chose the patriarchs. He thus irrevocably chose the Jewish nation. That's why they're loved. God's gifts and callings are irrevocable. So he gave the promise to the patriarchs, and by golly, he's going to fulfill that promise. And he fulfilled Abraham's calling by calling an elect in Israel. Which seems to go with option number one, that the fullness of the, all Israel, the fullness of, is the fullness of the Jews, which is individual, is the remnant of the Jews, individual Jewish believers. Now, how did the Jews becoming enemies of the Gentiles redound to your advantage, Paul says? Well, the apostles began preaching to the Gentiles when the Jews rejected it. We read in Romans 11, 11b, through their trespass, that's the Jews, through the Jews' trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles. Now, the patriarchs that Paul that Paul mentions in this verse, that's Abraham, basically Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Of course, land, seed, and blessing were the promises given to Abraham, or land, offspring, and blessing. The land was a type of heaven. The offspring are the seeds, type of Jesus. And the blessing to the nations that the Jews did when they were at the height of their glory under Solomon, that became a type for the blessing of the nations that came to the Gentiles, justification by faith. And that's one thing we need to look, whenever we look at the Abrahamic promises, we always got to see, all right, this is how they were fulfilled in the Old Testament. That's fine, but let's remember their ultimate fulfillments in the New Testament. We go to Romans 11:29. Since God's gracious gifts and calling are irrevocable. Now, the gifts that Paul is referring to here is the gifts that are given to the patriarchs because of the covenant that they had with God. He mentions patriarchs in verse 28. He mentions covenant in verse 27. Verse 27, this will be my covenant with them. And in verse 28, the Jews are loved because of the patriarchs. Why are they loved because of the patriarchs? Because the gifts and callings of God are, are without repentance. And what are the gifts to the patriarchs? Land, offspring, and blessing, the famous promises. And those are irrevocable. They're going to be fulfilled. They weren't fulfilled in the Jewish nation completely like the Jews thought because Abraham is now the father of the Gentiles. They were fulfilled in Gentiles coming to Christ. That's in Romans 4. But nonetheless, God's gifts and calling are irrevocable. He's not going to bail out on his promise to the Jews. He's going to fulfill it in a different way than they thought. 
But he's still going to fulfill those promises because God's gifts are irrevocable. Now, some gifts from God are actually revocable, as John Gill points out. How about life? You're not going to live forever. How about health, strength, riches? Some Christians have them and some Christians don't. They're not irrevocable. How about youth? That gift is obviously going to be revoked as one grows older. How about gifts to serve the church? Those can be taken away upon a moral failure. How about a calling to a particular ministry? God can change that. But there's some gifts that can never be taken away. And one of those gifts is the gift of God's free grace for salvation. That ain't ever going to be taken away from you unless you're an Armenian and believe you can lose your salvation. All I can say is God help you if you believe that because it ain't true. Now, I've just said that God's gifts are irrevocable and the gifts refers to the Abrahamic promises, the promises to Abraham. But now the question is, do those promises of the Abrahamic covenant, do they apply to individual Jews or to the nation of Jews? And again, this is a recurring theme in this theological controversy. Is it all the Jews as a nation? That's option three. That are going to be saved when all Israel is saved? Is it the nation of Jews or is it individual Jews, the remnant of Jews? Let me give you a quote from Jameson Fawcett Brown. He's going to take a position that I don't agree with. He's going to say it refers to the nation of Jews. God's gifts of the Abrahamic promises refers to a nation of Jews. Quote, the natural Israel, not the remnant of them according to the election of grace, i.e. not my position. The natural Israel, not the remnant of them according to the election of grace, but the nation. And the emphasis is Jameson Fawcett Brown's, not mine. The nation sprung from Abraham according to the flesh are still an elect people and as such beloved. And again, that's option number three. The very same love which chose the fathers and rested on the fathers as a parent stem of the nation will rest on their descendants at large. Well, I don't think Jameson Fawcett Brown is right on that. I don't think it's referring to a nation that's going to receive God's gracious gifts irrevocably, but it refers rather to the remnant the elect remnant of Israel consisting of individual Jews who are going to receive the Abrahamic promises of land, i.e. heaven, offspring, i.e. Jesus, and blessings, justification by faith. Also, not only God's gifts irrevocable, also his calling. This is, according to Jameson Fawcett and Brown, calling that sovereign act by which God called Abraham to be the father of a particular people. Again, that's the context. Now, that's what Paul meant. Can we apply that as an application point to individuals called salvation? Well, if you are not an Arminian, you can. You can say, yeah, once he called me to get saved, that's it. It's irrevocable again. That's not what Paul's talking about, but I just thought I'd throw that in there. Once you're saved, you're always saved, just like your son. You got a son? He's always your son. You can't unson him. We go to verse Romans 11, verses 30 through 31. As you the Gentiles. Remember, Paul is talking to the Gentiles in this section of the letter because in Romans 11:13 he says, now I am speaking to you Gentiles. So in verse 30, he's still talking to the Gentiles. He says, as you Gentiles once disobeyed God, but now have received mercy through their, the Jews, disobedience. So they, the Jews, too, have now disobeyed, resulting in mercy to you so that they also now may receive mercy. Now, this is an old theme. We've mentioned this over and over again. This is the way it goes. This is the sequence of events we, we see over and over again in Romans 11. First of all, the Jews disbelieve. And, of course, Paul, when he's confronting that disbelief, he has to handle the problem of God's promises. People will say, hey, the Jews are disbelieving, therefore God's promises aren't true. He promised the covenants, and it's not true. But anyway, the Jews disbelieve, and then, okay, so they disbelieve, so the apostles have got no choice but go to the Gentiles, and the Gentiles believe. Well, now, the Gentiles believing, that provokes Israel to jealousy. Paul quotes that, I forgot where, a couple, I can't remember where he quoted that, either in this chapter or the previous chapter, but he provoked Israel to jealousy. He quoted Moses somewhere in Deuteronomy 30-something, where Moses said that the Gentiles were going to provoke the Jews to jealousy. And so, Paul quotes that and says, yeah, Israel is going to make, the Gentiles are going to make Israel jealous, and they're going to want to come into the kingdom. So, the Gentiles' belief provokes Israel to jealousy, which leads to Israel's salvation. So it goes from Jewish disbelief, preaching to the Gentiles, Gentiles believe, Israel gets jealous, and Israel gets saved. And then at the end, everybody is saved. The fullness of the Gentiles and all Israel, the, the remnant of Israel, is saved. And we're all happily grafted back into the cultivated olive tree, mentioned in Romans 11, and we all live happily ever after in heaven with Jesus. 
Romans 10, 11, verse 32. For God has imprisoned all in disobedience so that he may have mercy on all. Now that all there is not all without exception. It means all without ex- ex- distinction, Jews and Gentiles, which, of course, Paul has been flopping back and forth between Jews and Gentiles all through the book of Romans. He's talking about the relationship of Jews and Gentiles. So he's saying God has imprisoned everybody, Jews as well as Gentiles, in disobedience so that he may have mercy on all. So his point is, look, the Jews are only partially hardened. They're not completely hardened. They are imprisoned in disobedience, all right, just like the Gentiles were before Jesus came. They were imprisoned in disobedience, both Jews and Gentiles, so that he may have mercy on all on Jews and Gentiles. So Gentiles don't get cocky. Don't get arrogant. God is going to show mercy on the Jews. That's the immediate context here. Only, you know, the fullness of the Jews. All Israel is going to be saved. God's going to show mercy on all Israel, on the full remnant of the Jews. He's going to show mercy on it so Gentiles don't get cocky. Now, this idea of God is imprisoned all in disobedience, one might erroneously think that God is throwing around people, throwing people in disobedience, saying, okay, I'm going to make you disobey me. No, God is not the author of disobedience, as John Gill points out. God, having found them in unbelief, he leaves them in it. That's how they got imprisoned because of their own sin. Galatians 3.22, but the scripture has imprisoned everything under sin's power so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. The scripture has imprisoned everything under sin's power. That's what sin does. It makes you a prisoner and then it kills you. It, it makes you a prisoner, then it makes you sick, and then you die in jail. It's just amazing. After having watched a ton of Lifetime movies, and I think, you know, none of these movies would have happened if it ha- hadn't been for sin. Anorexia, prostitution, gambling addiction, rape, adultery, uh, uh, dancing in strip clubs, divorce, nasty divorces, teenage rebellion, anorexia, all of this stuff all has a sin and a root, alcoholism, drug addiction, pornography, acting in pornography, all that stuff, kidnapping, all of it happens because of sin. Sin imprisons people, and it's not a pretty sight. And that's why it seems to me that people are pretty foolish, the people in the world who go along and think, oh, life is a bowl of cherries, I can just go out and snort coke and do whatever I want, and it's going to be so fun. They're fools, absolute fools. Well, let's look at this phrase, so that. God has imprisoned all in disobedience, Romans 11:32. so that he may have mercy on all. This doesn't mean that God deliberately imprisoned people in their sin, so that means so that he could have an opportunity to show mercy. Since man has been imprisoned by God because of man's sin, this gives God the opportunity to show mercy and thank God for it. Romans 11, verse 33. Oh, Paul says, the the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and untraceable his ways. Now, what is Paul referring to here? It's not really clear. Here's an option. He could be referring to his discussion on predestination and free will, which he mentioned in Romans 9 in connection with how the Jews get saved sovereignly, by the, not by their works, not by keeping the law, but by God's grace. And, of course, predestined and free will is a notoriously difficult subject. He could have been talking about that, or he could have been talking about how the Jews will finally be grafted back in, how the partial hardening is unhardened, and, and how the full complement of Jews come into the kingdom, how they're grafted back into the olive tree and all that kind of stuff. He could be talking about that because after all, there's a lot of people been debating that one too, just like they've been debating predestination and free will. Well, if he's talking about predestination and free will, let me give you some quotations about how difficult it is. These are fun, you know, because you know everybody gets bollocked up on that issue. Quote, this is from Steve Ackerson. It has been said that if you look out the window on one side of a house, you see an Eve representing human responsibility. Look out a window on the other side of the house, and you'll see an opposite Eve representing God's sovereignty. What you don't see is where they meet. And where do they meet? Over your head. (laughs) In other words, predestination is over your head. It's over my head, too. It's over everybody's head. Anybody that starts talking about predestination and free will and thinks they got the, the full answer to it and there's no mystery in it, they are an idiot. And I can say that very I can't handle how predestination and free will fits together very good, but I sure can say that somebody thinks they got the full answer to it as an idiot. I don't have any problem with that. Here's another quote from John Gill. If there was a depth in these things unsearchable and past finding out by so great a man as the apostle, who had by revelation such knowledge in the mysteries of grace, and who had been caught up into the third heaven and heard things unutterable, how much less is it to be fathomed by others? If Paul couldn't figure it out, How in the world are we going to figure it out? 
Now, when Paul says that God's judgments are unsearchable and his ways are untraceable, what are judgment and ways? Well, it's not punishment of the wicked as one of his ways, or it's not the commands of God, because those are very plain and, in fact, searchable. I mean, you know, thou shalt not kill, murder, thou shalt not rape, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not perjure yourself, thou shalt not have no other gods before me. That's clear. That's not unsearchable. But how he say how the relationship of free will and predestination is unsearchable at, at the extreme, it is. I mean, we can learn something about it, of course, because it's revealed in the Scripture. But the full reconciliation of it is is going to be pretty hard and unsearchable, untraceable. And it's not only Christians, by the way. You look at Muslims who try to deal with the issue, secular philosophies like Aristotle. He tried to deal with the issue. Philosophers always talk about this. Look in Wikipedia under free will or predestination. You'll go all through the different philosophical options. Everybody has trouble with that. But we don't have trouble understanding the plain commands of Moses or Jesus. We don't. We just have trouble sometimes understanding how God carries his plans into effect. Abraham had a hard time figuring out how his promise was going to be fulfilled, his promise of a seed, when he went 24 or so years without having a baby, without having a son. And his wife's 90 years old, and all of a sudden God says, you know, next year you're going to get pregnant. She's going to get pregnant. You know, they, it was, that was hard for him to understand. But he understood what the promise was going to be, that he was going to have descendants. Just because some of God's ways are unsearchable doesn't mean all of them are. As Francis Schaeffer used to say, we may not have exhaustive truth, but we do have true truth. Just Paul is not advocating skepticism here. Oh, I don't know what truth is. Now, he's not trying to tell you to be postmodern, just to throw your hands up and say, well, truth is whoever has the majority in that particular academic department and all this other narcissistic, relativistic nonsense that postmodern modernism has inflicted upon the human race. Romans 11.34, Paul continues, For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been his counselor? This, again, fits in with the last verse, as we, how unsearchable his judgments are and untraceable his ways. And the reason they're untraceable is because we can't know the mind of the Lord. He's God. We're not. We can't counsel God. God, I think you ought to do it this way. Uh, that's stupid. Calvin described the scriptures as God's baby talk. These deep scriptures that we have so much trouble understanding in many places, God's baby talk. Da, 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 da. Hey, sweet daddy. You know how parents talk to kids, try to make them understand? Or how, how about how you talk to a dog? You ever talk to a dog? You know, kind of simplify your vocabulary a little bit so that dog can understand what you're trying to say. Well, that's what God has to do with us. Isaiah 55, 8. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, and your ways are not my ways. This is the Lord's declaration. It's an oft-quoted verse because people are oftentimes befuddled by what God is doing. Now, I, I will say this. I think that verse is, is uh, sometimes overused and misapplied. Because, again, it's one thing to say you can't understand everything about God, but it's another thing to say that you can't understand anything about God. Therefore, I'm not going to study the Bible. That's too hard for me. John 3.16, that's too hard for me. No. Nowhere does the fact that God is difficult to understand, and even the Scriptures, tell us that we don't study the Bible. Doesn't Peter say, study yourself to show yourself approved unto God? And that same Peter said, Paul, some of Paul's writings are hard to understand. But he didn't say, well, let's just give up. Don't try to understand what Paul said, because... God's ways are unsearchable. No, that's a misuse. That's an abuse of this teaching here. Let's go to Romans 11.35. Who is ever first given to him and has to be repaid? <laughs> you going to make God your debtor and you're going to be his creditor? Uh-uh. doesn't work that way. Here's a quote from John Gill. I'm going to change his pronouns to nouns to make it understandable. He thinks that he can just throw out pronouns and we automatically know what he's referring to. That's that old-fashioned English. No man can give God anything which God has not first given the man, or which God has not a prior right to, or a claim upon the man for. Adam, in innocence, was not able to give God anything, nor are the angels in heaven, much less sinful men on earth, their bodies and souls, and all their enjoyments, all that is good in them, or done by them, are from the Lord. Men by all their good works, best duties and services, give nothing to God, nor lay him under any manner of obligation to them. Hence, no man can merit anything at the hands of God. So that's pretty good. Is the point of all this verse, again, going back to the context of Paul's writing here, what's the point? God is not under obligation to the Jews, and God is not under obligation to the Gentiles. God is not under obligation to the Jews because they have no claim against God, because God rejected them and chose the Gentiles. 
God did nothing wrong to the Jews to give a rise to the claim in the Jews because the Jews sinned. They earned it. They got what they deserved. So God's not under obligation to the Jews. Also, God is not under obligation to the Gentiles. God didn't save the Gentiles because he was under any obligation to them. The Gentiles did nothing right to give rise to a claim of salvation in the Gentiles. It was merely by God's grace that they got saved. So again, this is a, another another example of God's unsearchable grace. His grace, which again is one of the major themes of the book of Romans. We're justified by faith through grace. But God's grace is how we get saved. We don't earn it. We don't deserve it. This idea of being in debt to God or God being in debt to us, God not being in debt to us, one of Job's false friends, Elihu, said this in Job 35, 7, If you are righteous, what do you give him? Job, what do you, Job, give God? Or what does God receive from your hand? Now, of course, Elihu was a you know, false friend and a jerk. But what he said there was true, though. Job, you don't, God doesn't owe you anything, Job. Job 41, 11, this is Job talking. Who confronted me? Well, this is God speaking to Job. Who confronted me? The me refers to God. Who confronted me, God, that I should repay him? Everything under heaven belongs to me. In other words, confronting God to, hey, pay me back your debt you owe me, God. You going to confront me about that, God says? Uh-uh. Everything I have belongs to me. I don't owe you a thing, Job. Job down there sick and dying, you know, suffering horribly. And God says, I don't owe you anything. Even though you're sick and even though you're miserable and suffering, I don't owe you anything. Romans 11:36. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Now, what are these all things? This is probably referring to all the things of salvation and grace that Paul has been speaking of all the way through the book of Romans. This is John Gill's idea. It's also true that God created all natural created things, too. And you could, you could refer it to that. But I don't think that's what Paul's referring to. He's not referring to stars and grass and trees and fish and animals. He's talking about things of salvation. Now... When he says, from him, this is Jameson Fawcett and Brown's way of putting it, I like this. From him, God is the source of everything. Through him, God is the cause of everything. And to him, God is the purpose or end of everything. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Glory, of course, is the public manifestation or the public declaration of one's excellent characteristics. Let everybody see how glorious God is. Why? Because he saves us even though we don't deserve it. The church is the declaration of God's glory. The remnant of the Jews, of the elect Jews, and the Gentiles who are filled up, the elect Gentiles, the church manifests the glory of God forever, on and on and on throughout the universe, throughout all time. Amen. Ladies and gentlemen, we are now finished with Romans 11. In our next audio, we'll take up chapter 12. Now, in chapter 12, Paul's going to climb down from his high theological pedestal and not talk about predestination and the fullness of the Gentiles and all Israel being saved and all that kind of good stuff. Justification by faith, redemption, the relationship of the believer to the law, and all these hard theological problems. He's going to be a little more practical in chapter 12. He's going to talk about how we as Christians need to be a living sacrifice, how we all have gifts of grace, spiritual gifts given to us, and what is the mark of the true Christian? We'll take that up next audio. Hope you stay tuned for that one, and I hope you enjoyed this one.